This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Tech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from Tech. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm the director of the Special Pathogens Research Network at NITEC and an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. For those of you not yet familiar with NITEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the United States, with the goal of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NITEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. Joining me today as co-host is Ms. Rachel Luckadoo, a public health lawyer and assistant professor at UNMC with me. Hey, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Rachel and I are coming together for a three-episode series to talk to you about pathogens and pop culture. Pathogens are everywhere, and we're going to bring you some of the best and brightest experts to get a reality check on what's science and what's Hollywood in some of our favorite shows, books, and movies. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Arturo Casadabal. Dr. Casadabal is the Chair of Molecular and Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and his research focuses on host defense mechanisms, how fungi can cause disease, and in the development of antibody-based therapies for infectious diseases. Welcome to the show, Arturo. Thank you for having me, Lauren. And fair warning to our audience, there may be a few Last of Us spoilers in this episode. So let's go ahead and get started. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about fungus in pop culture. It's on the forefront of everyone's mind, everyone who's watching that new TV show, Last of Us, at least. With that, I'll hand it over to my co-host, Rachel, to tell us a little bit about this show. Yeah, so I'm very excited we're doing this podcast. I started watching The Last of Us a couple months ago, and I saw the opening scene where a virologist and a mycologist are talking about the relative deadliness of a viral or fungal pandemic. And I immediately texted Lauren and said, could this happen in real life? Can Nita give me answers? So selfishly, I'm very excited that we're doing this podcast, not just for my own benefit, but for anyone listening. So if you haven't seen the show, The Last of Us just finished its first season on HBO. And it's a show that's actually based on a video game set against this backdrop of a global fungal pandemic from a fungus called cordyceps, which is a real type of fungus. I will leave all of that to Arturo. He knows that much better than I do. But in the show, cordyceps has spread across the world and basically turned the majority of the human population into very fancy fungal zombies. On the show, we've got a couple of main characters making their way across this dystopian U.S. landscape. But to be honest, I don't think we really care about them today. I think we just care about the science behind the show. So with that, I'll ask you, Arturo, have you had a chance to watch any of the show? So by disclaimer, I haven't watched the show except for the opening scene. I found out about the show when friends began to email me and say, hey, did you advise them? And I had no clue what this was about. The reason for that was that in the past, I have proposed that with global warming, there is going to be an increase in fungal diseases as the fungi adapt to higher temperatures and defeat our thermal barrier. But the other interesting point is that somebody actually wrote to me and said, 
in that opening scene, the mycologist looks like you. And that's the way I went to look at it. I didn't think, <laughs> it I didn't think he looked like me, but you know, this, these opinions are all in the eye of the beholder. Could you tell us a little bit more about this pathogen and fungus generally, but really this pathogen cordyceps in real life? Where do we see it? How does it behave in humans? So cordyceps is a group of uh, many species of fungi, but I think the nugget tying into the show is that this is a type of fungus. Some species turn ants into zombies. They basically take over them and paralyze them and grow in them and reproduce and make spores. And so I think the idea was cordyceps turn ants into fungi. Currently, they can't hurt us because they can't grow our temperatures. But somehow with global warming, some species of cordyceps was able to adapt to higher temperatures and then cause this fungal pandemic. So in real life, these cordyceps can essentially do what's happening in the show, but only to ants, not to humans. That's right. And I point out that there are big differences between ants and us, <laughs> just, <laughs> just for the record. Biologically, they are, they are room temperature. They don't regulate their temperature. And also from an immunological point of view, they have a much less sophisticated immune system. We tend to have what is called adaptive immunity, B cells and T cells, and innate immunity, whereas the insects tend to have only innate immunity. So for a fungus to be able to do this to us, it would have to, to climb two high towers. It will have to climb the tower of temperature, and it will have to defeat a very different type of immune system that gives us tremendous protection. In the show, at least in the beginning, the Fungus is spread by spores. Is that how fungus spreads in real life? Yes. The fungi tend to spread in two different ways. The, the ones, for example, Candida albicans that we have, most of us are colonized with it, that we got from whoever took care of us when we were a baby, like our mother. So that's passed on uh, vertically. The other, but many of the other fungi that we get from the environment, what they do is they sporulate in the environment and then we breathe in the spores. So that part of the show is biologically correct. So Arturo, has cordyceps infected any other species beyond ants, or is it just ants at this point? I think it's, it's the insects. From a human infectious disease or mammalian infectious disease perspective, it's this class of organism is done in our radar screen. That's why it's good science fiction. Exactly. It makes it more entertaining that way. <laughs> right. No one would watch a show about ants. <laughs> so I don't know if you saw, Arturo, a little bit more about how the pathogen is represented in the show, but there's an introductory scene in the second episode talking about the origin of this cordyceps outbreak. And I think a suggestion is made to just bomb everything where the fungus is, and maybe that'll get rid of it. What do you think of that representation? Does that seem realistic? Well, I know I think it's very hard to get rid of fungi, in particular fungi spores, by bombing them. You know, without obviously, again, speculating without science fiction, my suspicion is that if you bomb a site full of fungal spores, you will get fungal spores all over the place. But I think I've been asked as a result of The Last of Us, you know, many of us in the fungal world have had our 15 minutes of fame, uh, been asked 
quite a bit by reporters. And the question that always gets posed is, can this happen? And I think my, the answer that I always give is, well, it's improbable, but not impossible. I think that based on all we know, it's not likely that we will ever see a type of last of us uh, pandemic. Is it impossible? No, you don't ever say impossible in science, particularly when you're dealing with biology. When, during my experience, for example, uh, when I was in medical school, retrovirus did not cause, well, I was taught did not cause human disease. And then we had HIV. And I was also taught that uh, coronaviruses didn't cause anything more than a runny nose. And then we have had three coronaviruses outbreak in the 21st century. So I think one always needs to be cautious that biology can spring big surprises on you. But for now, based on what we know, improbable but not impossible. In that same scene, Rachel was just talking about the mycologist says there are no treatment, there are no cures. Why aren't we working on cures or treatment for fungus in the same way we work on antivirals or antibiotics? So I think that there are, there are a couple of reasons uh, for this. One of them is the fungi are relatively new pathogens in the history of humanity. You can go back for smallpox epidemics. You can have the Black Death caused by Yersinia pestis. But the fungi don't really burst into the medical scene into the late 20th century. And the reason for that is that whereas there were always sporadic fungal diseases, you know, when people move to an area that was contaminated or had coccidiomycosis, for example, Central Valley, people would get them. It was only when modern medicine basically develop new therapies, corticosteroids, immunosuppressive therapies, anti-cancer therapies, that so we began to see many invasive fungal diseases. And the other thing that we saw in the late 20th century was the HIV pandemic. So what do they have in common? Modern medicine and the HIV pandemic, they both undermine immunity. Many of these treatments are done at the price of you know, normal immunity. So when you lower immunity, whether it is by infection, by treating cancer, by preventing transplants, by using steroids, you basically undermine one of the great pillars that keeps the fungi out, which is the immune system. So the first thing is there's a relatively recent pathogen. The second thing is that people don't th think to worry about them as much because they are not communicable. But we should return as to could there be a communicable fungal disease? You know, the answer I'm going to say to you is sure. But the current ones that we have, when they tend to affect individuals, it tends to be very severe for that individual, but you don't tend to get spread. And the third and last reason is, is biology. It turns out that the fungi are our closest relatives. And because they're our closest relatives, they're very close to us in biochemistry. So in order to make an antifungal drug, you need to find a difference. And consequently, there are few differences. So it's harder to make antifungal drugs than it is for, for some of the other organisms. So consequently, we only have three classes. And some of the recent fungi that have been in the news, like Candida auris, for example, is resistant to two of them. I think that's fascinating. Do you think that whole idea of fungal pathogens being a relatively recent phenomenon 
is part of why we maybe haven't seen as many fungal pathogens in pop culture before. Because I can't think of any other fungal pandemics or fungal pathogens that I've seen on TV shows or movies. So Rachel, if you were a tree, you'd be terrified of the fungi. If you were an insect, you'd be terrified of the fungi. If you were a frog, you'd be terrified of the fungi. But humans and mammals are remarkably resistant. And part of that is because we have higher temperatures. So we can keep out most of the fungal world out just by going through the day. And on top of that, we have this advanced immune system. But I think the important thing to look is that fungi are currently destroying entire ecosystems. The frogs, the chytrid fungus killing the frogs throughout the world is driven strong to extinction. The salamanders in Europe, the snakes in North America, the bats in the winter when they hibernate and their temperature lowers. So one question that we can discuss is, why are mammals so resistant? And I basically point out to you, temperature and advanced immunity. And that raises another question, and I pose it to you is, why mammals? I would argue to you that we don't make a lot of sense in terms of how much we have to eat. Think about it. I already have at least two meals, and I'm probably going to have one when this show is over. We tend to eat three, four times a day, and that is a very, very expensive lifestyle. And I have proposed uh, having fun because I like to, to always, science should be fun, that all these things are related. So when the Cretaceous ended and the dinosaurs went out, it was because of a rock from outer space. And the world had a really, really terrible time. You had shut down photosynthesis. You had night for months. And there were survivors. There were small reptiles and small mammals. But when the skies clear and the world recovered, guess what we got? The age of mammals. We did not have a second reptilian age. You go back and you can find that there was a massive fungal bloom at the time. And that massive fungal bloom, you can imagine the world became a compost. All the forest came out. So one way to put everything together in a consistent is we are here because we were selected by the fungi. Therefore, we are resistant to fungi, provided that the world stays about the same temperature and we don't get immunosuppressed. Well, I think that brings up an interesting question about the world staying the same temperature. How do you think fungal pathogens and other types of fungi will spread in light of climate change? Well, let's think about, we have two pillars, right? We have advanced immunity and we have high temperatures. So we can un undo advanced immunity with immunosuppressive drugs. And that's why we see, or HIV, right? But it's, we can't undo temperature very well. We can't lower our temperature and spend our days at 33 degrees. There is no therapy that cools us off for a long time. It's compatible with survival. But what would happen? If all these organisms that are out there, many of them that are loaded with the capacity to be virulent to plants, to insects, now adapted such that they could replicate at 37 degrees. So if that happened, the 21st century may see new fungal pathogens unknown to medicine. So currently what we know, and this brings us back to my quote about the coronaviruses and about 
about retroviruses, certainly what we know from current fungal pathogens may not apply to new organisms that we have yet to see. And there may be one example already, and that's Candida auris, which has been in the news this week because it's spreading in the United States. This is an organism that was unknown to medicine prior to 2007. Then in 2011 and 2012, emerges simultaneously in three continents, and the isolates are not related. What's going on here? It seems to me that one plausible explanation is that it was there all along in the environment. And then with global warming, it basically adapted such that it could move into the human niche. So we may already have the first example of something that humanity may have to confront in this century. Do you think a fungus like this, like Canada auris, could cause a COVID-19 style pandemic ultimately, maybe with different morbidity and mortality, but that the spread could look similar in tandem with some of the changes we're seeing from climate change? So I don't think Candida auris is likely to cause a global pandemic. Let's think about what you would need. Let's just think about COVID. You need to be highly infectious and you need to be aerosol transmitted. So currently, none of our fungal pathogens can do that. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you can get infected with a fungal pathogen that sporulates in the lung. So when you cough, you would cough out the spores. And, and in doing so, setting up a pandemic. Now, I don't want to alarm anybody. We're still talking on the realm of possibilities. But I do think that humanity gets surprised over and over again by assaults from nature. And I do think that we need to keep in mind the possibility that this could happen. Just because it hasn't happened is not a good predictor that it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean we won't see it. This show spurred a lot of discussion around fungal pathogens. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of mycologists across the world are, are feeling their 15 minutes of fame because it's created so much interest. Are you excited to see this recognition of fungal threats? Well, I'm, I'm happy that, that people are focusing on this kingdom. This is a huge kingdom out there. And just because we have been relatively protected against it, doesn't mean that it doesn't have big threats for us. And I would say, if, if you don't believe that, go ask the bats. The bats in North America were fine till the year 2006. And then a fungus was introduced that is a cold-loving fungus. So it, it, the bats are resistant in the summer. In the summer, the bats are flying around, they're eating insects, their temperature is 37, they don't have a problem with the fungus. But when they hibernate, their temperature drops, and in the winter, they get this fungal disease and they die. So that's just an example of, you know, a fellow mammalian species that can handle coronaviruses pretty well, that could handle all kinds of stuff. Now, with some bad species on the threat of extinction from a single fungal species. So you guys say, go ask the bats, go ask the frogs, go ask the snakes. I think that it's hubris if we think that there isn't a threat out there that we need to prepare for. That makes me think the other people that we should be asking is the whiskey drinkers. We recently <laughs> heard about this whiskey fungus that has a stronghold on the towns around whiskey distilleries in Tennessee. It definitely seems like a specific threat to scientific networking sessions everywhere, but 
Can you tell us a little bit about this fungus and what it means for distilling? I, I will tell you that just like many people, I learned about it in the news and then I went and read about it. You know, what you do is really important because many scientists are getting their information from the news. They're getting it from podcasts and things like this. And then when you hear it, then you go check it. And I think it's fascinating. It appears to be, the reason it's black is because presumably it makes melanin. And melanin is made by many fungal pathogens. And melanin is one of those things called a virulence factor. The way to think about melanin is it provides protection against a lot of things. Apparently, this fungus likes alcohol fumes. I don't know how much of the biology is being worked out. Is it a danger to humans? Uh, I don't know. I'd like to see its temperature susceptibility. I suspect that it's acclimated to growing in the environment, that we're probably too hot for it. But it is fascinating. And what it's also showing you is the remarkable resilience and variability of this kingdom. He's taking advantage of whiskey fumes. In Chernobyl, there's a damaged reactor, and the fungi there are taking advantage of radiation. The fungal damage reactor, Chernobyl, is coated with black fungi, and we have proposed and have some data that they are actually using radiation for energy. So you have a remarkably diverse kingdom, and I think these examples bring home that we need to pay more attention to it. I hadn't heard about the Chernobyl fungus it makes me think that there are things that we can learn from fungus that can improve human health potentially. Is there work ongoing in that space? People are looking at it, but the one thing to remember is the fungal feel is very small. Hmm. So whatever work has been done is relatively only a few groups. It's underfunded. It's, there is not a lot of work. But I, I will introduce you and to your listeners a concept. Whenever things go bad in the ecosystems, the fungi do well. The earth gets hit by a rock from outer space. You find evidence of a fungal bloom. You go back to the Permian extinction, the greatest extinction in the history of the biosphere. There is massive fungal proliferation at the end. You go to the disaster in Chernobyl. The fungi are doing pretty well in the damaged reactor. And you, you, you talk about disruptions of the ecosystem by bringing in whiskey fumes. You get a black fungus. And, and the reason for this is because it is a very large and heterogeneous group of organisms. And when you have so much diversity, you're likely to find one species or another that can do well in the debris of a cataclysm. I think that's so interesting. Personally, if I had to choose between the Chernobyl disaster site or a whiskey distillery, I'd probably choose the distillery as well. I agree with you. I'm curious, though. You talk about the diversity of different types of fungi. Do you have one that you think is most interesting or is your favorite type of fungus to talk about? Well, I think any researcher on their fungal field has their favorite organism, and that's the organism that they work with. I'm sure that if you had a candidate researcher here, it will tell you candida is my favorite organism. In my case, I would say that I, my entire professional life, I've been working on cryptococcus informans, which is a, a major pathogen of people with damaged immune systems. It causes cryptococcal meningitis and is now being designated one of the four WHO designated priority fungi. 
Can you tell us what the other three are? Actually, I, I didn't look it up, but I think it's Candida auris, uh, Aspergillus, Cryptococcus. Look it up. Don't take my word for it. But look, what's important about this is the WHO came out with a list of organisms of priorities. And th this is important because what you're getting at is you're getting at the World Health Organization recognizing that the fungal threat is there and that we need to focus on it. And this happened in the fall of last year. So it's relatively recent and there was a lot of publicity associated with the first time something like this has happened for the fungi. So a lot of our listeners are working in the environmental special pathogens and oftentimes on biocontainment units where one of the focuses constant decontamination or constant cleaning to keep the space safe, both for the patients and the healthcare workers who are in that space. Are there any specific fungal challenges to the healthcare environment that people working in special pathogens should pay attention to? Well, I think anybody who works on special pathogens and does cell culture has to deal with contaminated cell cultures all the time. I think, you know, in the space in which they're working on, I think the fungal threat is very small to none. I think for their work, the fungal threat is always there. Anybody who, who works on viruses, anybody who works on cell culture knows that keeping the mold out of your experiment is, is a constant. It's a constant work in progress. I think the answer to it, obviously, is to minimize the amount of outside air. Uh, you can have filtering units that will reduce the amount of spores. Currently, none except for coccidioesis imitis or histoplasma capsulatum, which are spore-producing organisms that you can get infected from them. Those have to be done at BSL-3. The other fungal pathogens are, are all BSL-2 organisms. Well, this has been just an incredible conversation, and I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing all of the details, all of the interesting content we've talked about on a pathogen that we don't talk about a lot. And I think your note about how small the field of, of fungal researchers is, is really important. So I'll put that call out to our, our trainees and our students and our, our potential special pathogens researchers out there. You know, if you're looking for a field, this, this one sounds very exciting. Is there anything else we should know about fungus before we call it a day? I think things to know is that today, fungal diseases are relatively rare unless you're immunosuppressed. The problem is that once a person gets them, they're incredibly hard to treat because the absence of the immune system and the lack of many antifungal drugs makes treating fungal diseases uh, more difficult. I think most people... Uh, are afraid of, of the superficial fungal diseases, you know, the nail fungus, the athlete's foot or something like that. Those tend to be not life-threatening, obviously. Uh, they, can, they can be disfiguring, they can be difficult to deal with, but it, it is the ones that get into your organs, the ones that pose a threat. And, if, and I say to the listeners, if you want to get a sense Next time you go to a meeting, next time you're invited to go to a conference, note how many fungal talks there are. They're often few and far between. Uh, they, we need to pay more attention to this kingdom. Humanity has a habit of looking for threats under the lamppost. You focus on what you know, and then you're surprised by what you don't know. We worried about an, a flu pandemic, 
and out came coronavirus. Flu is still out there, and it's a deadly danger, and I think we are all really worried about the spread of H5N1. That's a threat we know, and we are watching it. I think what we need to do is we need to expand our surveillance. We need to think about the threats that are not we're not worrying about because history shows us that they're the ones that surprise us. And when they come, we're often unprepared. One thing that we didn't touch about, there is a report that we're getting colder. That is, they analyze all the human temperatures for the last hundred years. And there is a trend towards we're getting colder. Not by much, but it has to do with the fact that we live in a cleaner world and we don't have a lot of the infectious diseases that were around in 1900. Infectious diseases cause inflammation. Inflammation causes heat. So in a funny way, uh, not in a funny way, but in a concerning way, the fungi may be adapting to higher temperatures and we are getting colder. And somehow that may be trouble ahead. So humans are getting colder body temperature overall, and that's making us potentially susceptible? Well, it's moving us in the opposite direction. It's moving us in the direction where the fungi live. Not by much, but we are not all 37. We are not all, you know, it's a bell curve. And the people that are in the colder part of the spectrum may be the ones who are more susceptible initially. That that makes me worried because I'm always a a low body temperature person. So now (laughs) I know I need to eat more. Well, this has just been an incredible conversation. Anything else, Rachel, from your perspective? I really appreciate it, Arturo. This has been fascinating. And honestly, you've been such a good advocate for this kind of fungal research and studies. I'm like, man, we need more TV shows about fungal pathogens. Everyone's got to be talking about this. So thank you so much. Well, to all our listeners, keep eating so that you maintain your body temperature. You'll keep most fungi out and let's just hope that... uh, that that will continue. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks, Rachel, for joining us. This has been great. And I look forward to exploring the next pathogen in this series, which will be with Dr. Billy Fisher. um, And we'll be talking about Ebola and pop culture. So thank you both for joining me. I think the NETAC listeners will really enjoy this podcast and this conversation and look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you, Dr. Casadaval and Rachel, for joining us today to discuss the realities and myths of this very scary fungus. For those of you listening at home, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pathogens in Pop Culture. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics, from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. Also join us for the next two in our series of Pathogens in Pop Culture. If you have any questions for NITEC or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at nitech.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NITEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.